That's a video from the amazing, awesome day that we had last week at the Easter celebration and the outdoor service at the Ballantyne campus. Being there with the Ballantyne family was awesome. My daughter and I were there. My daughter actually uh, introduced me as Christine's dad rather than Jonathan's daughter. It was interesting. But I hope that you had a great Easter celebration wherever you are. I'm Jonathan Scott, one of the pastors here. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here at this post-Easter continued celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wherever you happen to be at any one of our other campuses. Thanks for tuning in. Before we get to the message, I want to encourage you. Next week, we begin a brand new series on the book of 2 Peter. We're going to kind of work through the, the campus pastors, Jason and I. We're excited about taking the, the next tw- uh, 10 weeks or so to walk through this powerful book that will encourage us to live courageously, confidently and righteously in the midst of challenging times, even as we anticipate the return of Christ. So I encourage you to come, bring your Bibles, and let's jump into that series on 2 Peter together. As we begin this this message that closes out this series, it was the late 1920s. The Depression is beginning to hit families all over the nation. And a man by the name of Ira Yates, he's a sheep farmer in West Texas, And he is dealing with financial difficulties because he's not able to afford to be able to pay for the principal and interest on his mortgage. And he fears that he may actually have to sell his sheep farm, his sheep ranch, until a seismographic crew shows up at his place and tells him that he actually may have oil beneath the surface. And this man has been troubled with financial difficulties in such a way that he has had to be living on government subsidy and even to the point of not being able to afford to pay for food or for clothing. And so he signs a lease contract, and they begin to drill, and about 1,000 feet of drilling, they strike a rich oil reserves that numbers about the yield of which is about 80,000 barrels of oil a day. The man becomes rich overnight in that sense. As a matter of fact, the New York Times in 1939 said that the estimated yield of his field was about 8 million barrels of oil per day. This man, Ira Yates, was a millionaire living in poverty because he was not aware of what was buried in the ground beneath him. It goes on to say that maybe some of us as Christians, that we are not completely aware of all that has been invested, all that is ours, the riches that are in Christ in and for us, and rather than living like the powerful, royal uh, inheritors that we should be, we find ourselves living beneath the investment of the divine riches through the resurrection and the residence of Jesus Christ in us. So we want to kind of pick that up today, especially when we take a look what happened in history with Jesus Christ after his resurrection. There was about 40 days of post-resurrection, pre-ascension activity that was going on. We find it in the book of Acts chapter 1, where Luke, who's the author, is writing to a friend by the name of Theophilus. He also writes the book of Luke that way, the gospel of Luke. And he says, I've written this to you. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Here's what verse 3 says. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 40 days of appearances. It's later on confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, I'm bringing this of a first importance, this gospel of first importance to you that Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, he died for the sins of the world, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and then he had appearances. First of all, to Peter, the 12, at one particular point, 500 saints at one time, and then to his brother James, and then Paul says, and ultimately, untimely, to me. In other words, <laughs> The idea of the question, where to find God, which is our series, where to find God, at that particular point, everywhere. For 40 days, Jesus was showing up in different places, in different ways, but ultimately, he leaves. We find that also in Acts chapter 1, that after commissioning the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come on them with power so that they'd be witnesses, it says this in verse 9, and when he, Jesus, said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 10 days later, as after Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples and imbues them with power, with a, with a new opportunity of being able to face the challenges in their life with resurrection potential and the church is born and birthed in power. I wonder, are we living up to the potential that's in us through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? You know, the late poet and author Carl Sandburg, he says this, that there's an eagle within me that wants to soar, but there's also a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. Sometimes we can be more or less eagles or hippopotamuses because we're not aware of what's taking place in us. This is kind of the downside of holidays right? Especially like Easter, because it comes and it goes. We celebrate Easter, and then it's on to the next thing. And we don't take the time to realize we're missing something simply because we're moving on to the next thing and not taking stock or advantage of the magnitude of what has been done for us, what is being done in us similar to this series on where to find God. We're going to be going to another series, which means, okay, we've, we've had enough of finding God. Listen to me. Don't stop finding God. The series might end, but the reality never does. But I want to kind of change the question because where to find God has basically been us asking the question, where can we find God out there? We've taken a look at nature. We've taken a look at the fact of finding God in humility, finding God when we're in distress, finding God we're doing his will, and finding God even out of dead places when God is still working in the dark. I want to change the question as we bring this series to a close and instead ask this question. Where might God desire most to be found? Where, rather than us, where, where do we find God? Where does God desire most to be found? Here's kind of the, the big idea I want you all to hang on with this message. That the irresistible, the powerful, the transforming reality of the resurrection is this. Is that the residence of the presence, presence of God is within his people. God resides within his people but it's inseparable from the reality that it's his revealed presence that's being expressed through his people as well. The residence of God within his people and the revealed presence of God through his people. That is an aspect of the power and the 
wonder of resurrection life. So here's a question I think you and I have to also ask. Can God be revealed properly through me as well as can people find God in me? Can people find the residing presence of God in me? My friends, we need to be aware and to claim the value and the riches of his residence in us in a way that people can access God through our lives. Which brings us to the passage of scripture for Romans chapter eight today. And in the honor of the reading of God's word as we respect the author of that word, if you are able, wherever you may be, across all of our campuses and at home, may I ask you to stand and we'll take a look at this passage. From Romans chapter eight, beginning at verse nine. You, however, Paul is speaking, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the, from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul, this man of passion and conviction, wants to make sure that the believers understand the magnitude of the value and the riches of the residing presence and power of God in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Understanding the presence of God. In other words, it starts off with realizing that it's God's presence that resides within his people and that that residence requires a relationship. The residence of God requires a relationship. Now, you'll take a look in verse 9 as we begin that passage and realize that it speaks in the same sentence of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. They are used interchangeably, which means that it actually affirms the divinity of Jesus Christ as God. But we're going to need to deal with that word, however, when he says you, however, because Paul is actually completing a thought from the previous discussion in the previous verses. You, however, and in those previous verses, he mentions and draws this pretty significant line that all those who have their minds and their lives set on the flesh, that means a lifestyle that is conditioned by one's own desires or one's own thinking separate from God, Paul says that people who live that way are actually, whether they know it or not, they're actually living in hostility to God. And that such people have neither the desire nor the ability of being able to follow the leadership of God in their lives. That there's this line that's being drawn. So he says in verse 9, you, however, speaking to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he says, you are not dominated. You're not controlled by the flesh. You're not controlled by a self-centered way of living. You, however, you're in the spirit. You're being controlled by a source, a force that's more powerful, a personal presence of God in your life that's more powerful. When he talks about that word dwell, that verb dwell actually comes from a Greek word, the noun, that actually means a home or a house or a dwelling place. The idea there is something that you reside in and you remain in, a home. I'm curious, how many of you, if you've ever had somebody come over to your house to stay for a while, you said to them these words, 
make yourself at home, right? Make yourself at home. And I know that we really mean that, but, but here's what I'm thinking. Do we really expect and intend for people to take that statement seriously? We're saying to them, hey, whatever you would do in your own home, the place where your name is on the deed mortgage, whatever you would do in your home, feel free to do it in our home, in my home. So that if they're at your house and they see a picture that maybe is crooked or a picture that's on the wrong wall or a picture they don't like, are they free, if they're making themselves at home, are they free to trash it or to move it? Are you okay with a person plopping their feet up on your coffee table like they would do at their own home? So if you were to come to my house and you were to stay with me for a while, I've got a couple of bedrooms, you'd have a guest, and I would say to you, make yourself at home. And you'd be like, cool. And so you decide... I'm not gonna use the shower that's near the, 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 the guest room. I'm gonna use the master bedroom shower. And so you decide to shower in my bathroom. Um, we're gonna have a problem with that. My wife, I may, she's gonna have an issue and she's gonna come talk to me and she's gonna say, Jonathan, that's what she's gonna say, Jonathan. Porque esta persona está usando la ducha en nuestro baño. How, how am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to work on the Spanish with my, with, with my wife. Why is this person using our shower? My answer to Aime would be, because we said, make yourself at home. 11.30 at night, we're in bed, getting ready to go to sleep. A knock at the master bedroom door, and there you are saying, hey, I'm tired, ready to go to sleep. And I say, well, you've got the, the bedrooms downstairs. And he says, no, I don't sleep in the guest bedrooms in my own house. I sleep in the master bedroom. That's going to be an extremely awkward moment. I don't think we really want people to completely make themselves at home when we're in it at the same time. I wonder if that may be how many of us as Christians feel the same way about Christ. Do we really want Christ to make himself at home? Which means he is free to move the furniture. He's free to get rid of stuff that doesn't belong. For you and me, many of us, that can present a problem because there are some things in our life that we are not ready to let go or change from. Are we really comfortable with Jesus Christ being at home in us? May I remind you of a powerful truth as far as his home. He bought it. Your, your life, he bought it. It's his home. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says this, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Here it is. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. In other words, this body, this life, no longer belongs to me. It no longer belongs to you. It is his dwelling place. And as Lord, he is free to do all that he wants to, to bring the beauty and the power of his life to that place. The residence of Jesus Christ, it requires a relationship. And Paul will go on to say this, anyone who does not have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ dwelling in them, does not belong to God. In our culture, that is difficult to stomach because a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really religious. I'm spiritual. On, on whose terms? 
I mean, that's easy to profess that, but does God agree with that? Because here's what the passage says, and here's what the scripture identifies. Those people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they've acknowledged their sin, and they've also affirmed Jesus' death for their sins, the forgiveness, reconciliation that comes as a result, and the resurrection from the dead. Only those people, when they place their faith and trust in Jesus, belong to God because of the residence of the Holy Spirit. Simply say that I'm spiritual doesn't mean that I'm spirit-dwelt. Paul draws this line and says, no, you're either in or he's, he's either in or not in. And only in a relationship with Jesus Christ can we welcome and celebrate the residence of God within us. We go on to the next part that says that his residence references his righteousness. The residence of God references his righteousness. And righteousness is basically being able to stand before God without shame. It's being made right with God. It's, it's something that reflects his character and his purposes. A way that we don't have to worry about guilt or shame because we stand as a reflection of the holy character of God. Paul goes on to say, look, even though your body is subject to sin, death, degradation, even though your body is subject to that, yet the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's what happens in the resurrection exchange. That Christ, through the Holy Spirit, brings his righteousness to us. This is the, the one who, even though he knew no sin, he became sin for us so that in him, by faith, we can become the righteousness of God. And we have a transition from an old condition of being under condemnation, a condition that's depraved, a condition that's separate and hostile from God, to a condition where he has given to us his righteousness that we couldn't earn, we couldn't work for, it's a gift that when Jesus moves in through the Spirit of God, that righteousness comes and everything that we do is fueled by the reality of this righteousness that has been given to us. This righteousness that makes us worthy, that makes us holy. What this means is that our life now can be lived in a way that reflects his purpose, that reflects his character in a way that honors his presence and his purpose. In other words, we have the power to live as we were designed to live. Listen to me. Nobody can live in relationship with God without righteousness. But with righteousness, it is an absolute guarantee that when we receive that, God restores, reconciles, and empowers us to live in proper and perfect relationship. It's not just something that's possible. It's guaranteed as a result of the fulfillment of the promise of God. You know, I had a, we had a person that was baptized a few uh, weeks ago, and I had an opportunity of being able to speak to him, and he said, hey, Jonathan, am I, am I missing something? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, after I got baptized, people were asking me, hey, um, how do you feel? And I was like, uh, well, I mean, I don't really feel, I mean, I feel good, but I don't feel any different. Am I missing something? And I said, unfortunately, that's how a lot of us as Christians are. We think that the validation for our salvation is our feelings. The foundation for assurance of the presence and the righteousness of God is not our feelings, but the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that anybody who would trust themselves to receive that gift of grace by faith that Christ 
promises to give them righteousness and to move in and reside within them. That is the validation that we have. And that righteousness empowers us for the kind of life that honors God. But here's a third thing as, as a result of this residence of God within us. And that is that the resurrection life and power flows from his residence. Resurrection life and power, it flows from his residence. Verse 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give, your, give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, God is the agent of that resurrection. That same spirit gives life to our mortal bodies in a couple, two ways. Number one, there will come a time eternally when we are going to experience complete, full, spiritual, and physical resurrection. We're going to get bodies like Jesus. We're going to get bodies that no longer die, no longer decay. We're going to have that eternally forever. That's coming. But when he says that he gives life to our mortal bodies, there's a truth where we don't have to die to taste resurrection life. That through the residence of the Holy Spirit, that he conveys that resurrection power to us right now. That we are spiritually resurrected, awaiting the full completion of that. But even right now, as we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, that we have the power of resurrected life already in us, even in bodies that are dying. Because now there's a part of us that never will that will never die. And we live our life through that kind of power. You know, for Ira Yates and his family, discovering what was beneath the soil changed their life forever. When you and I properly tap into the reality of resurrection, power, and life, it was always designed to make an eternal change rather than allowing us to continue to live beneath our perception of what we really are, that we live into the fullness of what God has given to us because he dwells, lives within his people. I think that's why, that's what God most desires the place for him to be found is in us. We can see him in creation. We can see him in all kinds of situations. But throughout the scripture, especially the New Testament, God underscores that he always has desired for his people to reflect his residence. But it doesn't just stop there, that God desires his residence, his revelation to be revealed through his people. We find that if we take a look at Acts chapter 3, a story, kind of as an example. Peter and John were on the way to the temple. They encounter a man who is lame. And the man is asking for money, asking for spare change. And Peter and John basically said to this man, look, we don't have silver, we don't have gold, but we'll give you what we do have. And then they say to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's what we got, that's what we're giving. And the man receives that and he gets up and he's walking, he's leaping, he's dancing, he's praising God. It's an amazing moment. People are flocking all over to, to see the sight of this man that they knew was lame. And all of a sudden, he is just doing the jig. He is, he's dancing with the, the power that's been, that's been given to him by faith through Peter and John. And at that particular point, when people have gathered, Peter preaches this message about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Of course, you know that there's a group of people who ain't going to like that, right? They're not going to like that. And sure enough, Peter and John are summoned to the court of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, ironically, to Annas and Caiaphas, the same two people who condemned Jesus Christ to death. They summon Peter and John, and they say to them, by what power, by what name, by what right do you have of how you've accomplished this miracle? And they basically said this. They said, make sure it's really clear, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, that we do these things. And the scripture goes on to say in verse 13, chapter 4, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is before Christianity became illegal because they wanted them to stop the preaching, but they couldn't dismiss the fact that there was this power. People had seen the miracle of this man walking and they took note that these guys, they didn't have seminary training, they didn't have any rabbinical teaching or training, and yet they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So all they could do was to say, okay, look, then we forbid you to speak of the name of Jesus Christ. And here's the response that Peter and John said in verse 19. The, they answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Remember, about 50 days before that, they were up in an upper room, cowering, afraid of saying anything to anybody because of what had taken place the night before when their master had died. Now, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrection power in their life, here is Peter and John before the, the same court that, that accused and condemned Jesus saying to them, look, whether or not we're supposed to listen to you or God, you be the judge, but we can't help it. We can't stop speaking and proclaiming the truth of what we have seen and what we have heard. The courage, the confidence, the conviction that changed and transformed these men into faithful receptacles of power and righteousness and courage kind of raises the question when we take a look at them and we take a look throughout the book of Acts to see the miraculous things that God did through their life. How is God to be revealed through us today? How is God to be revealed through us? Some suggestions. Certainly, I hope that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ would have the conviction and the courage that whenever we have the opportunity to speak with boldness and confidence and to proclaim the life-transforming reality of the Christ who died for our sins to be forgiven, but that he rose again triumphantly from the grave who seeks to reign through his residence in our life. That, that is one of the ways that the residence of God is to be revealed through us is in our bold proclamation of the gospel to those we have the opportunity of being able to share that with. I would also hope that that power in us that's revealed continues to encourage us to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, to pursue purity. The passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 reminds us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it also says, therefore, flee from sexual immorality. In other words, flee from those practices that are in contradiction to the nature of God. We actually have the power to live in a way that reflects 
is holiness. That's how the presence or residence of Jesus Christ is revealed through us in our faithful pursuit of what is holy. That in the way that we deal with other people, especially the difficult people in our life, that rather than them getting the natural output of our frustration or our anger, that what flows from us is the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that that's what people encounter, that they encounter God in and through us. Another thing that we have the power to protect or to affirm the God-given dignity of every human being because they're image bearer, though distorted, though marred, that every human being is still etched with the image of God in their life and that we affirm the sanctity of that dignity, whether it's in the womb or outside the womb, and that we will not take part in words or actions that denigrate the dignity and the value of human beings. And we'll stand up for the justice that people deserve as image bearers of God. Another way that that residence is revealed is that we will learn and we will practice being slow to speak and quick to listen. That we're not just going to spout off in anger, frustration, or simply to get our words out there. But that when we do speak, that what comes out of us, our words are filled with life and peace rather than hatred and, and anger. That the way that Jesus is revealed through us is that we will be generous. Generous as we steward the resources of time and treasures and talents in a way that reflects our priority of the kingdom of God and that everything that we have is already his and that we want to be as generous with our resources to others as he was generous with his resources to us. It means living with a, an eternal perspective in such a way that it becomes very clear that the almighty, righteous God lives within and through us. So what's the call to action for you and for me? That this God who desires most to be found in us, in you, and in me, that for the world to be able to find him clearly expressed in our life, then Jesus needs to be the master of the house. He needs to have full and free reign in what he purchased. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been purchased at the high price and cost of the Son of God. And we need to get out of the way so that he can fill every aspect of our life with his. You know, Corey Ten Boom, who was a Holocaust survivor and a powerful Christian leader, proclaiming her love and encouragement of, through Jesus Christ for many, many years, she used the uh, glove illustration, right? She basically said that a glove by itself can accomplish nothing. Uh, a glove can't get you a cup of coffee. A glove can't drive a car. A glove can't do anything. That is until a hand goes into it. And once 
the hand goes into the glove, now the glove can accomplish all kinds of things. To accomplish the works of God, his hand must be in us. She goes on to say that we, another picture, we are the gloves of God. That only with his spirit fully available to all the fingers, to every single part of the house, are we more capable of expressing his power, his life, and his hope, and his peace. But I got to tell you, he's not going to force it. He's not going to force it. You and I need to invite Christ to be at home in us. It's his place. (laughs) And he only desires to bring kingdom beauty and kingdom significance to our life. So where are you? Let me me ask you this question. Where in your life is Christ not at home? What, What part of your life do you not want to experience resurrection power? In your relationships, in your mental health, in your physical well-being, in your job, in your thought life. Let Jesus be at home in you. The residence of God in you revealed through you. And you get there through repentance, which is a gift. The gift of God that actually gives us a chance of being able to turn in a different direction and pursue him. There may be remorse and sadness with that, but that's not all there is, that repentance really is a change of mind, a change of direction. Whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you know that you've been living your life in such a way that it's not been representative of his leadership, repent. Or maybe you're here today and you have yet to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Repentance says, I am no longer gonna live my life on my terms. I live it in response to Jesus Christ, his grace his death, his resurrection, and his residing power to confess your sins and receive his grace and to rely on his residing presence in you. You know, over the last several weeks as we've gone through the series, I've given you prayers um, in response to where to find God. This one about the God desires most to be found in us. I want to offer you a prayer, and this prayer actually is, is inspired by the passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the lyrics of a song, a course from a long time ago, that might become a prayer for you to let Jesus have full access to your life. Jesus, be Jesus in me. No longer me, but thee. Resurrection power. Fill me this hour, Jesus, be Jesus in me. Pray that prayer and receive or claim the powerful, resurrection 
power of his presence in you and through you for his glory.